Uh, we are coming to our end of our series on the nuns here, and I uh, hope it's been a challenging piece to you. Uh, I hope the songs this morning were challenging to you. Think about just the clarity, especially of that last, last song for me. You know, it reminds me that um, like when it all is gone, you know, and our text today reminds us when it's all gone, just like, just give me Jesus, right? Because it's the only thing. He is the only one who's going to last forever. And sometimes we find ourselves just walking in sync with him. And spiritually things are good. And there's a point at which we just we feel like maybe we're, we're, um, we're good and we're thriving. And then there are times where that, that can just fade, right? It can maybe grow cold. It can be distant. It can be overcome in the parable of, of the seeds, right? Where the, the things of the world creep in and start to crowd it out. And maybe you find yourself just needing to refocus or to uh, be reignited in how do I, I just need to grow closer in my relationship with God. Okay, we have a class coming up that we'll uh, just fill you in on with regard to uh, if you want to grow spiritually, here's some things that will help you. Here's some things that will help you focus, some things that will help you just um, reorient and, and tweak a few things in your life or in some cases maybe completely rebuild a few things in your life that will put you on a path to being closer to him and to the life that he wants for you. So uh, just pay attention for things coming up. That, that's our next growth class coming up, okay? Now, maybe you've heard the story before about um, when former boxing heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali was, was flying to an engagement, and there was turbulence in the air. And so everyone was told to fasten their seatbelts, and everybody did fasten their seatbelts on the plane except for Ali. And so the flight attendant went up to him and told him to fasten his seatbelt, and he responded to her in that kind of cocky, arrogant, obnoxious <laughs> way that he had. Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant, without missing a beat, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Now fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> oh, uh, just for the opportunity to tell somebody something like that one time and to be in the mindset where I could actually remember it, that would be great. But sadly, like today, more than 46 million Americans have decided they don't need no seatbelt. They don't need God. They don't need God's word. They don't need God's plan to navigate through life's turbulence, nor to its eventual conclusion. These people are called the religious nuns, unaffiliated or uncommitted to any particular belief system spiritually. And we've looked at the fact that they represent 23%, nearly one out of every four Americans. Okay? Now, if you've explored any further that Pew Research study that I shared with you in week number one, you find a lot of things that ought to get your attention in there. For example, in that report, 32% of those that are unaffiliated, these nuns, they, they report that they seldom or never have feelings of spiritual peace or well-being. Man, that, that would just rock my boat, just that one alone. When it comes to how do they determine right and wrong, 57% say, well, just based on common sense. 18% based on reason. 17% based on science. And what will be extremely relevant to our scripture passage today 
we find that 53% of the nuns believe there is no heaven. 65% believe that there is no hell. Now in our time, in the last couple of decades, there have been some voices that have kind of risen from society to represent the voice of, of atheists. People like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Hawking may be the most familiar of them. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion, which is, is pretty much an angry attack against religion. He says in that book that if you raise your child in the faith, that that's equivalent to child abuse. Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How, Religious, How Religion Poisons Everything. If you open that book to page 217, you would read these words. How can we ever know how many children had their psychological and physical lives irreparably maimed by the inculcation of faith? Like, I'd go for that. Let's compare psychologically and spiritually and socially those who've been raised with faith and those who haven't. And let's look at the faith of their lives. And let's look how they've turned out. I would say that's okay. I'm up for that battle. Stephen Hawkins, or Hawking, I'm sorry, in his 2009 book, The Grand Design, argues that the laws of physics show that there's no need for a supreme being. Okay? Then he turns around and makes a, a, quote, little g God out of gravity, and his explanation was because of gravity that something could come out of nothing. Okay, so how, how, how did gravity get here? How are these laws put into place? Now, the truth is, like I believe, if you look at these pictures, that Hitchens on the right and Hawking on the bottom, okay, they, did you know they are now believers? I mean, they've died without Jesus, and everybody eventually becomes a believer and understands the reality and the truth of eternity, just not everyone experiences the benefits. And if things go the way they are, one day Dawkins will believe as well without the benefits. Now, on the other hand, Dr. William Lane Craig has, has summed up the most compelling arguments for the existence of God. In that summation, he, he talks about the cosmological argument talking about that it makes sense that the universe came from something rather than from nothing. Okay, about the teleological argument that says that the complexity of the universe makes a compelling case for an intelligent designer, not some kind of random formation. The moral argument, he says, that, that true morality can find its origin only in God. For very specifically, the resurrection of Jesus, stating that the evidence of the resurrection has never been refuted. Okay? And then what we talked about last week, this experience of God, that changed lives are evidence for the existence of God, and speak loudly as to God's abilities to come into someone's life and to change someone's life. So we've heard from the Apostle Paul from the Apostle John, from the Apostle Peter. And today I want to look at one of the probably many places that Jesus would have a word himself for these nuns. Okay, Now, turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 22. 
Okay, you open your Bible or your Bible app, it's page 979 on that Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 22. Sometimes this parable is called the Great Invitation. Okay, maybe in your Bible it has a heading that says the Parable of the Wedding Banquet. Okay? It's a great passage for people who are still trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. Okay? And as we open it up, we're going to read first about this, about this invitation. We're going to read where the invitation is offered. So pick up with me in verse 1. Matthew chapter 22, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to tell them to come. Now, as you might guess, ancient customs are different than our customs today when it comes to weddings. Shoot, the difference between, in my lifetime, in wedding customs <laughs> has been huge. I mean, back in the day, which sounds incredibly old. <laughs> it's only old, not incredibly old. right? I remember the day when you would show up for your wedding at church and afterwards you'd simply just walk down to the fellowship hall and you'd have mints and nuts and punch and get your gifts and off to your honeymoon. It's a lot different these days, these wedding customs, which is okay. Like, but throughout time, it just the wedding has been like this big festive event of celebration. The wedding feast in Jesus' days, I mean, the feast itself would sometimes last four days. People would come from all over, family and friends, to celebrate this event. And remember in the parable now, Jesus is talking about there is this king, and the wedding is for his son. Now, this would be a big deal. Being invited to the king's son's wedding is something a person might brag about for, for their lifetime. I mean, in our lifetime, think about if you'd received a wedding invitation to the wedding of um, maybe Charles and Diana, okay? or, or William and Kate, okay? or Harry and Meghan, okay? or like Alex and J-Lo, or I don't even know if they're even still together. <laughs> day on, day off, who knows, right? We've kind of digressed, right? And somewhat irrelevant, but this passage is not going to be irrelevant. I mean, it would be amazing honor in that day, as it was in the story, to be invited to the wedding to honor the king's son. Now, you may or may not, though, you've been invited yourself to a very special event. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9 says... Blessed are those who've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That, that's you and me. Okay? And I hope that many of you are excited like I am for that event to take place, that celebration. Now, think about this. Right? The, the happiest, most joyful experience, think about that, that you can think of. Maybe think about the... The, the best dinner party you ever attended, the best food that you ever ate, whatever just is, is excessive to you in that way. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Clearly those who are thinking heaven is going to be dull and boring don't have a clue. Okay? God is planning 
And Jesus is preparing an, an incomparable celebration for eternity. And you and I have been invited, and, and it's a big deal. And so that's what is the thrust of this parable. Now, I would remind us, like you and I, we have been invited all of our lives, actually. Maybe the first time you heard um, a Bible story from your grandparent. Maybe the first time you sensed that, that your dad was by your bedside praying for you. Maybe the first time your, your parents took you to church. Or a friend invited you to youth group or to Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Maybe the first time you went to camp. Or the many times you went to camp. Maybe when you saw that Gideon Bible in your hotel room. Maybe when you heard that worship song on the radio or in a church service. Maybe when that invitation was offered after a sermon. Every time that your heart has felt touched that your interest has been piqued or that your longing for something more happens. God has been calling you into his family, to the cross, to experience his grace. And maybe he's calling you today. I mean, everywhere and always, God has been knocking on the door of your heart and even if you didn't know it was him at times, you know that now. And you sense his desire. And even if you are a nun, even if you are unaffiliated, uncommitted, or uncaring about it, God will knock on the door of your heart and personally invite you. And yet in our parable, as is often the case in life, we find that that invitation is refused. Look back in chapter 22. I'm going to read verse 2 again and, and join it with the next few verses. Jesus is telling the parable, he says, He sent his servants, the king, to those who had been invited to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now in ancient times there would have been two invitations that would have been part of this wedding. The first would have come perhaps months in advance and would have been kind of akin to our, our save the date note. You know, weddings happening in October, mark it on your calendar. But the servants of the king would have actually gone door to door and they would have invited guests and gotten responses to people. And so then would come the second notice or the second invitation. And it might say something like, hey, plan to arrive at the palace wedding this Saturday at 3 p.m. 
Okay? And that's where the story here turns ugly. People who'd already committed to come because it was the king and, and it didn't mean anything at the time suddenly don't want to be bothered by this. They have other priorities. They considered their business, whatever it was, more important than the king's invitation. And some we read even responded with violence. So these potential guests, they did more than just refuse the king's invitation. What's going on here is they're rejecting the king himself. And, and maybe you see the application. Like this is how God deals with us, with you and I. Abundant life, eternal life through Christ. Like they're by invitation. No one is forced to become one of his people in that way. I mean, you can, though it makes no sense. You can decline the invitation to the Lord's wedding feast. Nobody has to go. Anyone can politely ignore God's invitation or even reject it altogether. Be hostile towards Him. But either way, the results are the same. Two things are going to happen. This is the point of the parable. These two things. First, the Lord is going to respond. I mean, judgment day is coming. You cannot read Matthew chapter 22 without understanding. Judgment day is coming. It may not be tomorrow. It may not happen for years, but it will happen. We're in our small group. We just were studying 2 Peter 3 this week, talking about Peter in that day. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. People were scoffing and mocking and said, Yeah, 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 Jesus said he's going to come back. Where is he? We haven't seen him yet. Why are you so worried about this? And now in our day, we have people who say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what he said, but it's been a long time. We haven't seen him yet. Don't bother me. But listen, on, those, on that day, those who refuse the invitation, those who reject the Lord will regret that decision, but they will know it was their choice. Years ago, back when, when the newspapers were more prevalent than they are today, and people read them more than they do today, there's an atheistic kind of out there, uh, kind of aggressive farmer. Okay? And to all his contemporaries, he wrote this letter to the editor. And this is what it said. He said, I plowed on Sunday. I planted on Sunday. I cultivated on Sunday. And I harvested and hauled in my crops on Sunday. But I never went to church on Sunday. He said, yet I harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else. Even those God-fearing people that never missed a church service. So the editor of the newspaper printed that, that note or that letter to the editor in the opinion column. And underneath it, the editor added this remark. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. I know you think you have this all figured out. One day, you're going to figure out something else. Judgment day will come. The second thing we find about this um, passage, that when we reject the invitation... The celebration 
is going to go on whether you and I are a part of it or not. Okay? Whether those people who first received the invitation or not came, that wasn't the point. The king's son was getting married. And there was going to be a feast and there was going to be a celebration. And it was going to go on whether they were part of it or not. The Lord wants everyone of us in this place that he is preparing. But he's a gentleman. He gives us free will. He's not going to force anyone to become part of his forever family. But listen, neither is he going to cancel the celebration just because you don't show up. Just because you don't think it's important enough. Just because you refuse to participate. So back to the story. The king tells his servants to go out and to get whomever they can find. You know, no one is too poor. No one is too bad. No one is too messed up. No one is too old for the, the king's celebration. Like, you know that, right? You I mean, we're making application here. In our day, the same thing is true. And yet, some people don't know that. Have you heard people say, well, I'm just not the religious type? Someone maybe says, well, I've waited too long, or it's too late for me, or I've made too much of a mess of my life, or maybe they say, you know, my wife or my husband or my family would simply disown me. Maybe you, like me, have heard some version of this. From people who are convinced God would never be interested in me. You don't know my life or my story. But you know what's worse than that? Would be if you and I, as the recipients of God's grace, believed that was actually true. I mean, do you believe that there are people who are not worthy of God's grace? If you do, don't you have to count yourself among them? Listen, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. That's from God, not from Chris. And couldn't we all agree today that like this invitation from the King of Kings is the most important invitation any of us would ever receive. And therefore, it's the most important invitation any of us could ever give. Like to turn it down, it's unthinkable, unimaginable that we would walk away from such an opportunity. But there's one more twist to this parable, all right? And, and I worked with how, what, how to characterize it or phrase it. I decided on this. The invitation is distorted, okay? Um, maybe misunderstood, probably not. This is an act of the will. But look at me in verse 11 with me. It says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot. Throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, couldn't Jesus just have concluded this parable just a verse earlier? I mean, it's disappointing the original people didn't come, but the banquet hall's full, his son is getting married, and it would be so exciting. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
I mean, everyone's gathered for this royal wedding feast. Then the king arrives, and all is well until he notices this one person not properly dressed. And when he asks for an explanation, the man offers no excuse, no reasoning. So the king has him bound and expelled. And and this is like more... This is more significant than just being kicked out of a wedding, you know? Oh, we got Uncle Fred, and you know how Uncle Fred is, and, you know, we can't do this to our kids, so we're just going to ask him to leave a little early before things get out of hand. It's not that kind of a thing. I mean, the wording here, the terminology, maybe you recognize in the text, that's like terminology for eternal punishment when we read outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in plain language... Here he's talking about hell, right? So what's the point that he's making? Well, can I say first, like, this isn't about what clothes you wear to church, right? I mean, hopefully we've all come to a point where we realize you can't tell the condition of a person's heart by the type of clothes that they are wearing in a church service, okay? I mean, casual attire is fine. What's not fine is casual commitment or some kind of indifferent attitude toward God. I believe God is much more offended by those things than whether or not we wear or fit some kind of a dress code. Yet to many people, when they read this passage, right, the king seems unfair. I mean, how how could he expect someone coming right off the street to have the right clothes? No, you know, they're not too poor, they're not too bad, they're not too whatever, and yet they expect him to come into properly dressed to the king's son's wedding? Unless you understand that in those days, when you came to that kind of a wedding, the king gave you the clothes. Everybody put on a robe that they received from the king, and that's the attire for the feast. So everyone else was dressed for the occasion. Everyone received the robe that the king gave them. But this person said no thank you and here's the point they wrongly assumed that they could come on their own terms I mean maybe he was stubborn nobody's going to tell me what to do nobody's going to tell me what I can wear no one's going to tell me how to dress I'm good enough the way I am and that's where we cross the line right I mean how many of us are good enough to come into heaven How many of us, our sin would have kept us out a long time ago? That's the point that Jesus is making here. Like anyone who dares to presume upon God's grace on, you know, thanks for the invitation. I'll be there. I'm going to live my own life first. I'm going to do things the way I want to first. I'm going to do it on my own time and my own way. But in the end... You know, like the kid in the illustration a couple of weeks ago, you know, eventually going to say, either come in or get out, and, and then I'll go in. Listen, we dare not ignore the king's terms. When you read through the scriptures, it's not difficult. It, it doesn't um, require a college degree. It requires a, a humble heart. And a grateful heart, God says through his word, if you want to come to me, you have to have faith. I mean, you have to believe. You have to actually trust in Jesus. 
And you've got to repent. You can't just go your own way. You'll never be perfect at it, but I want you to go my way. I want you to live how I have designed you to, and I'll tell you what is best for you. And I want you to live that way. And I want you to confess that Jesus is Lord of, of your life. And then I want you to be baptized. I want you to be, have your sins washed away, to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And I want you to just, as best you can, live this faithful Christian life of love and generosity and service. Jesus said to his disciples that they should be taught to obey everything that he commanded. Remember that from the Great Commission? Listen, never make the mistake of thinking that because we are saved by grace that we can approach faith with a, with a whatever okay, or an anything goes attitude. That's part of the point of Matthew chapter 22. Accepting God's invitation, God's way. If you do it other ways, the, the reminder from the text today is that that assumption could be fatal. Robert Ingersoll was a, um, an outspoken atheist in order in days just after the Civil War. And he had a friend whose name was Philip Brooks. And some of you will know that Philip Brooks is the, is the author of the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he was a faithful believer, but he was dying. And when he was dying, he was so weak that he just, he refused all visits from his friends um, just because he was in his last, thought, maybe days, hours, moments. He didn't know. But when Robert Ingersoll, his friend, came to visit, he let him in. And Ingersoll was surprised, and he said, I'm really, it's good to see you, and I'm thankful to see you, but I don't understand why you let me in to see you when, when your best friends you've kept away. To which Brooks responded, he said, listen, I'm confident I'm going to see them in the future. I just figured this was probably the last time I would see you. In 1899, at the age of 65, Robert Ingersoll became a believer when he died without the benefits. Listen, we all have to be appropriately clothed at the wedding feast. That's what Jesus was saying. And he's told us what that looks like. In the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 14, it says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In the book of Galatians chapter 3, we read, You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's what the robe looks like. The blood of Jesus that we celebrated in communion covering us, making us pure and white as snow. And then comes the punchline in the story. Look down at verse 13, where, 14 where Jesus says, For many are invited but few are chosen. Okay? Everyone's invited. Few people end up at the table. But it's not God's fault. Okay? Remember, not everyone is going to accept the invitation to enter the kingdom. And not everyone is serious enough to clothe themselves in God's righteousness. But our own righteousness is not enough. George Bush was, was vice president at the time in the United States when Leonid Brezhnev died. Brezhnev, you know, oversaw just the um, atheistic 
communist regime, right? And it said at his funeral that she just stood silent and stoic and motionless beside his casket until the very end. And then at the very end, she did what Bush thought was maybe one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever. As the soldiers touched the casket to close the lid as an act of faith and as an act of hope, she reached down and over her husband's chest made the sign of a cross. This atheistic, secular um, man, her husband, she hoped it had it all wrong, or at least believed that he did. And she hoped that there was another life. As they're closing the casket, her best thought about the symbol of what that other life might be or mean was a cross, the cross of Jesus, hoping that Jesus himself might have mercy on her husband. Listen, the sad part is she couldn't make that choice for him. He had to accept the mercy of God. Each person has to choose for themselves what they're going to do with the king's invitation. There, there's, there's a wedding feast planned. Okay? There is an eternity in heaven that is prepared, and you yourself have been invited. Every one of us has been invited, and God is inviting you again today to respond to that invitation. And we want to help. You know, God's heart is open. God's ears are open to hear your cry. The baptistry is ready. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. I'd invite you, grab one of our leaders, grab myself. I'll be back by the sound booth there and talk to us about how to accept the king's invitation to his wedding feast. Let's pray together. Father, an example of your mercy today, of your grace, of your goodness to us who don't deserve to be invited but have been invited, who don't deserve the gift of salvation and grace and mercy, but have been offered that gift. Lord, may we not pass it up as we hear and sense that you're calling again. We feel you knocking. We hear your call. Give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom to respond. Through Jesus, I pray.